Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. This is a special Parkinson's Awareness Month episode of When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Each Wednesday in April, we will be releasing an episode featuring new interviews and never-before-heard bits of interviews that I've collected over the past two seasons. From people with Parkinson's and their advocacy to the leaders of the Parkinson's organizations around the world that we're counting on to support us in our journeys and help drive research for new treatment options. These are the keepers of hope, the difference makers, the believers. They know you can lead a great life today with Parkinson's and that tomorrow, no matter how far in the future that may be, we can all live lives without Parkinson's. Today, I'm talking to Heather Kennedy. Hi, I'm Heather. I like long walks on the beach. I'm a Virgo. Heather is funny, bright, sarcastic, creative, inspiring, and always finding new, amazing ways to share her story of Parkinson's. Like many of us, it took her a while to find out she had Parkinson's and took even longer to accept it. In 2011, doctors told her it was PD. She didn't accept it until 2012 when she started taking Cinemet. Heather, also known by the pin name Kathleen Kiddo, writes a bunch online about Parkinson's and life. She spent years in film and photography as a production assistant and creates some great videos. Living in Northern California, she's a single mom trying to figure out the dating scene and managing the progression of her Parkinson's. Here's my conversation with Heather Kennedy. What took you to the doctor the first place that got you diagnosed? I picked up my violin, and I am my mother's daughter, and my mother, when I asked if I could play the drums, told me I had a choice, violin or viola. And violin is very exacting and requires your finger pads to be right on the string. And when I picked up my violin, I realized I couldn't play. Not only couldn't I play, but I couldn't do the vibrato. And so it became scary to me, and then my neck began to ache. And my knuckles were sort of dragging. I was very depressed. And I just became worried, like something's wrong. And they kept telling me it was in my head for years. And they said I had lupus. Next, it was fibromyalgia. And finally, probably, they said it would be Lyme disease. Before I saw another neurologist who diagnosed me almost immediately. Why did it take a year to believe that it was Parkinson's? It's not so much that I didn't believe it was Parkinson's. I think I just didn't trust the medication. You know, you go to a doctor and they say, very matter of fact, you have Parkinson's. They hand you these drugs. And you're like, well, what is this? Oh, my hair's going to fall out and I might have a lot of impulsive and compulsive reactions. So I kind of halved it for a while and, and haphazardly took it. Didn't really notice much difference because, you know, there's that honeymoon period where you're not really malfunctioning yet. <laughs> So by the time about a year rolled around and I saw a different neurologist who was much more specific than I, I knew for sure. When you are sitting there and you can't play the violin and you are aching and no one's really believing you, what, what's going through your head? It feels a bit like an alternative universe. Like I'm underwater in a wool blanket, the water's freezing, and all of my friends are above the surface of the water laughing and playing and dancing, and they're, and they're looking down saying, why don't you just come out of the water? What are you doing down there? And I'm kind of screaming underwater, like those dreams where you're screaming and no one can hear you. And, and they're, they're kind of smiling down and waving at me like they don't realize that I'm in peril. It feels a little like that, like I'm always yelling and into a vacuum. Um, so there's this feeling of isolation, this immediate isolation. Scary. 
when you were diagnosed, what did you know about Parkinson's? Michael J. Fox. And also, I Googled that little kind of stooped figure, the illustration that we all complain about, and I thought, huh, I'm not a, I'm not a little old man. This doesn't fit. I'm not Michael J. Fox. We're, I'm not represented here at all. And I just kept looking for representations of me, uh, much in the way my friend's children, who are um, of, of mixed races, always look for representations of themselves in the media. And I just didn't see anything. So I was like, well, where are the young women? And I decided to put my face out there a little bit, you know. And why do you think it took so long to diagnose you? Do you think that it had to do with your gender as well? And the first doctor that I saw, absolutely. He no longer works as a physician in the United States of America. He works in Vancouver. He was someone who was so dismissive that he actually wrote in my permanent medical record that I was an addict because my pupils were dilated, because I did take an Ativan that day because I was horrified that I borrowed from a friend, by the way, um, that I was horrified because I thought that there was going to be some painful testing in my um, digits with the neurologic testing because a friend had had some very painful tests done. And it was 8 o'clock in the morning, and I was kind of shaky, and I looked probably ragged. And he says in the medical report, based upon her appearance, I'm going to suggest this person is a drug addict, basically. And he was so far off the mark that within a few months when I saw another doctor, the second that I walked into that doctor's office pretty much was like, oh, you have Parkinson's disease. So I'm not really sure why it took so long to... He was the first doctor that I saw in earnest. I had seen other doctors prior to that specialist. I just didn't know that I needed to go to a movement specialist. Yeah, talk about the importance of a, of a, a movement disorder specialist. Well, neurology has many different fields within itself as well. So if you go to an MDS, they're going to know precisely what to look for, as I do and as you probably do now. You can probably see someone moving out in public and think to yourself, oh, I'm pretty certain that that's Parkinson's. There are distinct characteristics that we share. And I had already been doing a bit of the freezing. My left hand wasn't keeping up with my right. I had all the other symptoms, um, brain fog and all kinds of things. But when he did the basics and ran me through the, the routine, it was so perfunctory, the first doctor, that the second one did a much more extensive, comprehensive test. And um, he, they all, the doctors prior to those, those two, did say, and I quote, this is all in your head. I think you might need some antidepressants. I think you're just depressed. And so I've tried all of those medications as well. I'm well-versed in the med medication department. So uh, they, they weren't necessarily wrong. They just weren't accurate. Uh, it, it was in your head. <laughs> it was. Yeah, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you may have been depressed. Bingo! It may, depression may have been a symptom of it. Uh, and that's the thing uh, with, but with an MDS is they can notice those non-motor symptoms a lot easier, too. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I do see a great doctor now through UCSF named Chadwick Christine, and he's just brilliant. So whenever I do mention doctors or incorrect medications, it's not him. He, he prescribes very carefully. Yeah, it's important to like your your MDS, your neurologist, your your whoever's in your care team. Uh, for me, I mean, that's that's who I trust. I mean, mine, like he'll check in on me like every six months. Just give me a call, see how I'm doing. Do I need any adjustments on my meds? You know, how are th how's the new medication yeah. working? Like, like I, I don't get that from any other doctor. 
The really nice thing about the UCSF format is that you have something called MyChart, which many hospitals or, or health plans do have, but you can communicate directly with the team. So the nurse practitioners, at least, you know, someone will get back to you within, you know, 48 hours. God, and, and they'll get back to you right away and they'll refill your, your, prescript, your script and everything's just done. So I don't have to drive all the way into San Francisco from where I live, which is kind of nice for people with Parkinson's. So there's a little bit of telemedicine coming up, too. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. Uh, you're, a, you're a mom. Yes. I, what was I thinking? No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> how, how old were your kids when you were diagnosed? They were young because my son is almost 20 now. And my daughter is 16. And what do they think? So, you know, they, you know, I don't think that there's any way to describe the ups and downs. The off times still throw them off as well. And for that, I'm deeply ashamed, in fact, that I can't manage this disease better. But as the efficacy of our drugs fail and the honeymoon periods end, and we experience these gross up and downs, who suffers? The family, the people nearest us, our partners. So the kids are often baffled, and there will be days when I can't drive my daughter to school. I've had to put my 15, at the time, 15-year-old daughter, into an Uber or a Lyft to go to school because I couldn't get in the car safely. So there's that. Yeah. That's good for a, 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 a little therapy session there. Some good material. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to be a parent because you already feel like you're not doing everything you can. I know of no parent that thinks they're doing a fabulous job all the time. To begin with, you know. Yeah, well, other than me, I'm I'm an awesome dad. Uh, but my, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know I know what you of what you're speaking because I, I can't do enough. Um, I don't think to you know because I, I work all day and I get home and Henry just wants to play, 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 and I'm yeah exhausted and I haven't seen Rebecca, so I want to spend time with her too. And so I'm splitting my time between the two of them, and I've got a couple of hours before bedtime, and it's just like, it's not quality time. I'm, I'm, I'm wiped. Yeah, this is what we talk about a lot in our support groups, how we have to be everything to everyone. And before my major support group starts here in the area, we split off, so the women are talking about women things and men about men things. And so women are often talking about how frustrating it is to be pulled in so many different directions. You know, we have to look look beautiful and we have to be friends with everyone and we have to be the supportive wife, daughter, sister, friend, you know, um, we have to be in the career world. We have to be a good lover. We have to be a good mother. We have to be a good citizen. We have to, you know, we're trying so hard and Parkinson's wipes everything out like a tsunami. It covers everything with this relentless fatigue and exhaustion to start. There are so many other things, of course, but just start there and you're like, wow, I'm already at half speed with half the energy I had before to do twice as much work that keeps increasing, right? Like you mentioned, you're wiped out when you get home. We're all so wiped out. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot more conversation about the experience of Parkinson's between men and women, not just from a symptom mm-hmm. standpoint, but how it impacts their role mm-hmm. in the family and earning potential and society and available treatments and research and everything else. Yes. You know, what, what have, yes. What's your experience been like? As a woman, I have found that it changes your everything from your libido to your ability to focus and multitask. Like before, I thought it was so great at getting all these household chores done. Now I'll look at the dishes and just shrug. The apathy sets in. And I used to be meticulous about these things. I will say the part that really bothers me right now is the menopause that's sneaking up. 
that I'm sweating through my sheets and that once a month, my medication doesn't work. It just doesn't hit. Without getting too deep into that, I also find that it, it makes it a little hard to go on a date when you have, like, um, let's say, urgency, you know, <laughs> urinary urgency or, or things like that. I mean, there's a lot of things that just aren't very sexy about Parkinson's. You know, you start to sort of slur and people think you're drunk or, you know, the, the dates that I go on I have to know ahead of time, hey, you know, here's what you're getting into. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. So. so let's let's talk about dating a little bit. I I'm grateful that I have a lovely wife of 20 years, and I don't have to do that. But that's a real yeah. real issue for a lot of people with Parkinson's. We talk about care partners, and uh, you know you you don't have a, a, you know a, a, a husband, uh, and you're trying right. to trying to date. Uh, so you're, I mean, mm-hmm. first off, who is you? Who would you consider your care partner? Well, it's funny. I think that would be split up between many of my friends. And unfortunately, my family of origin is across the country as well. So I don't have any family nearby, not even in this state anymore. Wow. They've all passed. So my friends really are my family. And I get tremendous support from, believe it or not, you and the online friends that I've made through Parkinson's and everyone that I've met through the wonderful World Parkinson's Congress. Those are, you are my support system. Me Good too. Story. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. it's it's been life changing yeah. for me. Uh, but I don't yeah. know what I would do without it. Yeah, no, I don't know either. Because there's always somebody if I'm awake at two in the morning that I can talk to because they're in Europe or Australia and they're up and at them, and uh, or, <laughs> yeah. or, or like if I'm having a you know a day and we're on the same time zone like you and I are, we can catch up and you know it just it's so nice to have you know. Dozens of people uh, available uh, at the flip of a switch. It's kind of cool. Yeah, who who just get it? Right. Yeah. So uh, you don't have a husband or a wife or 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 a partner of some any kind. You're looking for one. You you're looking to date. What is what is a date like when you have Parkinson's? Can I tell you about my last date? Sure. So I'm late for this date, and this is like a really cool surfer dude, okay? He's waiting for me at the train, and I'm running toward the train. This is the last date that I've been on, okay? Just, this is why I don't date. I'm, I'm running for the train, and I realize I really have to go to the bathroom, but I don't want to miss the train. I can hear the train coming, so I'm speeding through the turnstile. I drop my card, miss the train anyway, run up the stairs, apologize profusely. We're going to miss, be late to the band. We get to the band. We're having a great time. And the bathroom is sort of overflowing. It's not working. It's one of those places. Yeah. So we're listening to a band for an hour or so. And we leave. We get back on the train. And I realize, wow, I really forgot I need to go to the bathroom. And of course, if you've ever been on any train in public transportation, there's no place to stop. No. So all the bathrooms are locked. So we finally get to our final destination, and I run to what I think might be an open bathroom and anticipate that, and it's closed and locked. At this point, all bets are off. And he's like, why don't you just go in the parking lot? So I'm I'm, (laughs) I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is not graceful, not cool. Run out to the parking lot, find some paltry bushes. I mean, they're very thin. As I bend down, full moon. All the car's lights go on because guess what? Everybody else came off the BART train at the same time and was getting into their cars. Oh, no. They were all getting in their car. Yes, I'm full Monty, full moon, behind a very thin shred of bushes, okay? Date is pretending not to look, not to notice, <laughs> furiously tapping away on phone, turning away, leaves the, um, 
leaves the the bottle of juice that we had bought on my on my <laughs> on my windshield of my car and says, "Oh, it's really nice hanging out." Promptly gets in the car and kind of drives off rather quickly. <laughs> I'm sitting there. My pants are half soiled because, of course, I did pull them up, right? Midstream. I'm not going to be there. And I didn't know what to say. I was speechless. So I tried to make jokes the next day on text. Those kind of fell flat. I mean, how many? I was bending down looking for a contact. I was I was pretending to adjust something. I was um, I dropped something down my pants. I mean, I couldn't even come up with anything. My my you know my material was so lousy. Needless to say, I never saw that person again. However, I don't really blame him, nor do I blame anyone. I've been ghosted a lot before people even had a chance to meet me because I would tell them my real name. They would Google, find out I'm a Parkinson's advocate, and the rest is all there. Yeah. So you do have to lose some privacy as an advocate, and it makes dating rather difficult. What do you? What would be a good scenario? What do you wish for would dating? Happen? Yeah. What would you wish would happen? Oh, I spent years with different sanghas and meditation groups and groups that, you know, really teach and preach compassion and tonglen and things. I would love to meet someone that's who is evolved enough to let that surface sort of fall away and let that be secondary. And maybe someone patient, so it would probably be ha- it would probably have to be someone that is in my peer group, my age group at least. Because I do find that when I date younger people, they're lovely and amazing and often extremely evolved, but they haven't had children or they haven't, and that's not necessarily important, but they haven't been through life's extreme challenges like death. You know, we've lost a lot of people by our age. And so I'm really looking for someone who's quite evolved. I think I would call myself, is it sapiosexual? I do fall in love with minds and hearts. And, and the material stuff kind of falls away because looks only keep my attention for two minutes and 14 seconds. I've actually timed this. After that, you better have something else to bring to the party. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would say, and I'm not, you know, I'm not particularly, it's not that I'm not picky about appearances. It's just that I don't, that's not really that important to me anymore at all. There's a humility that comes with the, having your body not work sometimes that makes you realize some of this stuff is small beings. It doesn't really matter. It matters how you feel in another's presence, whether they expand your heart and mind. And when you get to see that the world through this fascinating new place of, of two sets of eyes, you know? Yeah. And 50s, you know, as we approach 50, uh, is tough mm-hmm. because, you know, you're, you're kind of like stuck between the, I'm not old, but I'm aging. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. if, if you're dating somebody who has a disease like Parkinson's, is it just a reminder that we're getting older faster? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be we are really all hard. Terrified. Yeah, that is, yeah. I mean, but that's going to be hard uh, because you, then you have to get with somebody who has had that life experience, like you said, have the ups and downs, and and understands that yeah. what life is all about. And it's you know, and it, it's you know, the the life's most fragile moments are what makes us who we are. Absolutely, just like the famous quote by Lenny. He said, um, the cracks are where the light gets in. That's Leonard Cohen. Yeah. Or many spiritual people say, you know, where you've been wounded is where you can be brilliant. Where you've been wounded is where the work starts. Yeah. And in improv, we celebrate the failures. Yes. Irish wristwatch. Irish wristwatch. I still can't do the warm-up, Flair. <laughs> They're Irish hard. Wristwatch. They're hard. 
so, um, mm-hmm. so do you? So, when you think about all of this, how how does it make you feel about your Parkinson's? I have an amount of shame that I can't do certain things or show up for certain people as I'd like to. That I need to then draw attention to the fact that I have this increasing disability that's creeping up. It's like I'm always bringing an uninvited guest with me wherever I go. So there's that, but largely I really, I know this sounds strange maybe to some people, but I really like myself and I know who I am and what my intentions are. And I want to leave the world just a little better than I found it if possible. And if I had to get Parkinson's to do that, so be it. I I just, you know, there are so many other challenges besides Parkinson's that come up simultaneously. You know, none of this happens in a vacuum. And so I feel bad when, I guess I feel bad when I feel burdened, uh, like I'm burdening someone, like I'm being a burden. That's when I feel the worst. So, you know, we do everything we can to stay as healthy as possible, but there are days when we actually do need to ask for help, you know? And how's, how's that for you? Boy, is that, it's both humiliating and humbling and it's, it's, um, it teaches, it does teach you, though, who means it when they say the word love or that they care for you, because the ones who show up, I mean, really show up, um, like my friend Jody, who traveled, she's just my friend, and she traveled all the way to Japan with me to support me during my talk. That's awesome. At the WPC. I mean, she's just, a, she's a marvelous friend, and I have so many friends like that. You know, you really know who means it, and because some people kind of disappear, and it isn't personal. We know that. It's like you said. It remind we we may remind them of death or you know fragility or, or vulnerability that they can't look at for whatever reason. Who, who knows what you know? People move away from each other for no reason at all. You know, it doesn't have to be Parkinson's. But yeah. I, I know I run into old friends like from high school or whatever. Yeah. And they see me and they know what's going on and they they just have this these puppy dog guys. Yeah, like oh poor you, and then you find yourself soothing them, like you said in that one podcast. <laughs> right, it's like, oh, like you're like no no no, it's okay. Everybody has something. I'm fine. I'm on. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm great. Like we we are always making everybody else feel better about our disease. Yes, yes I've actually hugged someone that had tears in their eyes recently, and I'm like, I'm really okay. It doesn't hurt. She's like, does it hurt? <laughs> yes, it does. Aww, Extremely. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, buy me a drink or a cookie or something. Right, now. yeah. Poor me, yeah. I like to blame everything on Parkinson's, and my kids catch me all the time. They're like, Mom? I'll be like, Parkinson's, you know, I'll shrug. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> didn't mean to slap you out of the corner of my eye there. I didn't mean to, like, slap you with my elbow. Yeah, I, I do it so. quite a bit, too. I'm like, oh, you know, I got the Parkinson's, so... Yeah, <laughs> I got the goiter. Yeah. <laughs> have you noticed, Larry, that everybody likes to share their health issues with you when you tell them you have Parkinson's, oh, no matter what yes. it is? Yes, I get the, hey, do you mind if I shut the door and we talk? Sure, come on. <laughs> That's what I know. Oh, no. You're like, I didn't need to know that part. You should probably get some ointment for that, right? Is yeah. that <laughs> well, you should certainly see a doctor. Yes. <laughs> Well, I think you people tell you a lot because you do have a way of making people feel very comfortable and, and cared about. You have so, such respect. So I really love talking to you on and off the air. Well, I like talking to you too, Kathleen Kiddo. Kathleen Kiddo. What can, <laughs> what can Kathleen Kiddo do that Heather can't? Well, Kathleen Kiddo is a moniker that comes from Kill Bill. Beatrix Kiddo is the main character of Kill Bill, and she has a Hattori Hanzo sword and can get the 
Yakuza, you know, I'll, I'll slice them down. Right. But I only had a pen. And because my friends were calling me kill Bill, uh oh, my friends kept telling me, Hey, you're going to go kill Bill. You better stop that. It just stuck. The name stuck. So my middle name's Kathleen. They kept calling me, Hey kiddo. Hey, Kathleen kiddo, you're going to go kill Bill today. But all I had was a pen. So I just started writing so she can write, right? Like she mm. can just keep writing. That's all we can do. Is it a superpower for you? You know, I feel like a part of my brain has been awakened in this process. It's, a, it's an awakening with Parkinson's. I've lost so many skills, like my, my awesome hip-hop dance moves. <laughs> but I, I swear, my, my capacity for language and my ability to concentrate and fo- hyper-focus on something has expanded a bit. So writing is a natural progression for me. I've always kept a journal. And I love it. It's a way to clarify and share with the world. And, you know, you give someone sort of a little window into these stories, these miraculous stories. Some of them, I don't even know where they come from. They don't belong to me. Yeah, so you, know, you, like do, you, you do write, you, you write a lot, uh, uh, it's, uh, you're prolific with your writing. And it's it's not just about Parkinson's. It's, it's, um, it's experiential. It's... Um, it's, yeah. It feels fantastical at times, and and, and 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 extremely raw at other times. And so, what what motivates you? Pain, depression, despondence, and then on the flip side, love, and this loving kindness that I've received, and these magical connections that I feel with other people inspire me. Like I can get off the phone with someone like you, Larry, and I can say, "Oh my gosh." He made me think about all these cool things. I'm going to write them down. And as I'm writing for a little bit of time, they then expand into a story. And it's neat how that happens. Everything in my experience becomes a part of the story, whether I'm looking at some beautiful sparkly pants or I'm noticing how someone was yelling at their child at the edge of the park or, you know, squirrel. No, (laughs) no, but everything does get into the stories, everything. Yeah. So would you consider it therapy? It can be it can be cathartic, but I think there's a danger in saying that writing itself would be therapy. There are times when I write in my, in my journal and those things that have not been published where I do think of it therapeutically. Um, and I suppose there's also a therapeutic aspect to sharing when you hear people say, "Wow, I feel less alone because I saw this, and I have I too have this experience." So there's there's a nice connection and a therapeutic healing in that. Yes, but it can be dangerous to say that it's therapy per se. I believe everyone in our community, by the way, should see a therapist of some sort regularly. I really do. I think that would be beneficial to all. Do you find any relief from alternative therapies? Oh, tremendous. In fact, that's my main gig. Tell yeah, me, tell me about PS- it. Yeah. I get EMDR, which is a particular kind of training that refiles the traumatic memories from the short term into the long term. That's my, that's my Cliff Notes version of that. And then I also get something called body talk, which can be done over the phone. It's much like Reiki. And I, I get craniosacral therapy from a very um, seasoned professional here that does that. I do massage therapy, acupuncture. Love my naturopath. He was the first person to notice that it was neurologic, by the way. Oh, really? He just started tearing up one day. Yeah, I'd been seeing him as my doctor for about 15 years or so. And he had tears in his eyes and said, you know, I have to send you to a neurologic chiropractor because I want him to check something out. And I'm like, neurologic? Hmm, that's weird. Yeah, he noticed it. And guess who else noticed it? My optician. Or oh. my optometrist, excuse me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she said, 
said, there's something wrong with your eyes. You need to go see a neurologist. Wild, huh? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I also, the other therapy that I would say might be called alternative um, would be dance therapy, for sure. Scream therapy, although I don't really scream into anything. I just kind of like yell and talk to myself wandering around the house. See why I don't have any dates, Larry? <laughs> um, I, do, I do boxing, you know, boxing's great therapy. You don't want to fight when your fight response, uh, fight response is all used up by punching a bag, you know? There's no fight left. Right. Great. Is PD a fight for you? Do you fight PD? Yes. I, well, I, I worry about that language, too. I really love um, my, my poet friend, Wayne, who always says we should be careful of speaking of this as a battle or warriors or, you know, referring. And it is hard to avoid this language because it does feel like you're just Sisyphean task of sludging up the hill with this weight and you never can win. You know Parkinson's is going to win. Even the warriors among us, even Muhammad Ali, you know, we, we know what's going to happen. But, so it does feel like that. It does feel like a never-ending, quote-unquote, battle. But I try not to frame it that way because I have to live with it. You know, I have to make peace with my monsters and demons and say, come on in and have some tea, but please don't stay quite so long. Yeah, my wife and I talk about that a lot because she has to remind me it's not a fight. Yeah. You're not going to win. It's not going, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, we're, it's like we need an exorcist. It's within. You know? well, and I, and I don't mean, yeah. We've adopted that language <laughs> from cancer. Where you, can, yes. you can remove cancer from your body. You cannot remove Parkinson's from your body. And I've had friends say to me, you seem better. You look better. Oh, you're doing better now. I've had doctors tell me that. And of course they're well-meaning. Oh, God. I know. It's horrible. <laughs> So uh, let's go back to your first doctor that was misdiagnosing you and misdiagnosing you and misdiagnosing you. Mm -hmm. at, what oh, point, that guy. at what point did you lose faith and have to fire him? Oh, almost immediately, because I knew that he was wrong about the addiction part. I'm, I'm not an addict, you know, so I knew that that was wrong. Well, I also knew that he was hostile in a way that I found odd and I knew that, and I thought, or I suspected it was because I was a woman. So I started talking to other women in my community. Lo and behold, I was not alone in my experience. So that sort of helped me verify and gave me courage to say, hey, something's really wrong here. This guy's making a mess and, and swelling people's. Um, although, you know, getting a diagnosis doesn't really help. I mean, there's not a lot we can do about it. It's not like he slowed you know, he sped up the progression of my disease. It was going to happen regardless of whether he said I had it or not, right? So can't be too angry. Right, but you can, you know, I think sometimes we we just assume that doctors, I know I grew up in a, in a time when you didn't question doctors. You didn't, you know. Or, doc, or elders. Or elders. And so yeah. there's there's this feeling like, well, um, well, you know, the doctor, you know, he's treating you that way for a reason, you know. Like you begin to mm -hmm. blame yourself um, and, and, and the idea of firing your doctor just seems like it, it would be foreign to my parents. Um, but right. I know that like when, when I have a physician tell me, oh, you lost your trimmer. No. Oh my God. Didn't lose it. Oh my God. <laughs> Oops. Where'd it go? Oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. Uh, <laughs> no, I found it. And now it's going to punch you in the throat. 
so, uh, you know, there's times when you're like, okay, you're just not interested in knowing enough about this disease for it to be beneficial for me. So I'm going to have to let you go. Um, Precisely right. At, at what point, like you stayed with him longer than, you know, you, you didn't quit right away. At what point did you say, okay, I got to move on? This was after three visits. When And the fourth visit was me telling him with paperwork, look, you've made a terrible mistake. Can you please rescind these remarks immediately? And him then giving me another five-page um, monologue or dialogue about how I didn't understand how the medical system worked and I didn't know things, which is probably true, but that was the wrong time to be dropping that knowledge. Um, I think we need to demand better care. And we need to demand it in a way that is not aggressive, but assertive. We need to say and advocate for ourselves because nobody else is going to do it. We cannot assume the left-hand side of the right. Look at how many doctors we've seen that are in different healthcare plans. I don't know about you, but not everyone is in the same plan that I see. So if that's true, keeping those things separate and the paperwork correct is, is difficult. And we have to demand that, you know, are you sure that all these records are going, like, are you aware that I'm on this drug? You know, keep, we need to keep repeating that. Carry your medication list with you. And it is always changing. I know that's maddening. But even to presume that we might not, that they might always check those things is too much. I, I had a random, um, I, I went to see a, a podiatrist once and got a medication for something that I was experiencing with swelling in my feet. It actually interacted with my Parkinson's drugs. And it, this isn't my current podiatrist, by the way. I don't want to get anybody in trouble here. But he didn't check it for whatever reason. I don't know what happened, but it, it had a, a terrible interaction. Um, it caused a lot of problems, actually. But how would I know? You know, we just assume that they know what they're doing. Right. We, we do. There was one person in our Parkinson's community who, whose name I will not mention who thought they had Parkinson's for three years and was on the drugs, was going to all the uh, the, the meetups and everything. And turns out uh, it's not true. The doctor was wrong. So you can be misdiagnosed. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have a friend who was diagnosed um, uh, with, uh, uh, what's it called? Um MSA. MSA. Oh gosh. So she well, that's lived, frightening. She lived for two years thinking she was dying and making those plans. <laughs> and I told her, Oh my god, you need to go see a, a, an MDS. And they're like, you do not have MSA. Wow. Well, I hope there's some good news there that she told everyone that she loved them and made them feel appreciated and cherished, right? Well, that's it changes everything, thing? though. It changes yeah. everything. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah. Oh, my God. The episode of When Life Gives You Parkinson's on Misdiagnosis featuring Jeanette and Barry Penn was posted January 7th, 2020. It's the fifth most downloaded episode of all time and worth a listen if you've not heard it. Oh, good. I can't wait to hear. I love to listen to your stories. I love to listen to your interviews. In fact, you've inspired me to do a podcast. Yeah, tell me about that. Thank you. I've, you know, we're doing all this talking about being misunderstood and misheard and misread and, you know, people, we're getting framed in a way that we don't like. A lot of Parkinson's people are talking about this. So I came up a while back with an idea for misdiagnosis, as in M-I-S-S, where I talk about people or, and with people and in, in the context of Parkinson's and all these mixed up feelings that we have. At first, it was going to be centered around women, but there are so many men with fabulous stories, like really fascinating stuff, that I think I'm just going to be calling myself misdiagnosis for the purpose of, purpose of hosting the show. And I'm going to let each person with, that, who's living with a chronic disease of any sort, you know, something chronic and debilitating, 
tell a story about themselves. And it can be pretty much anything as long as it kind of comes back to the idea of the diagnosis. And I'm happy to listen to anyone's misdiagnosis, of course, right? Because we've all felt like it was pulling teeth to get diagnosed, but that's not really the center of it. It's like you say, you know, the human interest stories are what's more important and more interesting to me. How did you come to, like, because you're a writer, so how did you come to the spoken word? You know, I've had a lot of people ask me to read their books on tape, and I just haven't had time to, to fill those orders yet. And I've... I loved the old radio shows. Do you remember? I don't know if you had these when you were growing up, but my grandparents had this old radio, and we'd listen to this mystery show at night. Some of the sound effects were like thunder and rain, and there would be like this private dick, you know, this this private eye that would be trying to solve a case, and they would cut to an ad right before they gave you like the real scoop. And you would be you'd be listening to like footsteps in the hall. And my imagination was so much more vivid when there wasn't a visual in front of me. And I really went along with that. And so books on tape are really fun for me. And podcasts became really fun for me. And I find because I can't write because of the micrographia and mm-hmm. because my dictation programs completely suck, excuse my, my French, but they do. And it's a different part of your brain to do that besides writing anyway. I figured I might as well just speak into the microphone. Saves time. People seem to enjoy it more. And a lot of people don't enjoy reading like they used to, apparently, because if I write anything over two paragraphs, I get a lot of flack. So I thought I'd just put it on a tape, right? You know, just record it. Yeah, it it, it hurts my eyes to read more than a paragraph. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. You uh, know, we had that eye tracking problem too sometimes. Right. So, uh, that, yeah. Well, I'll tell you. Not only um, did I uh, listen to those old radio shows, uh, I uh, oh, okay. yeah, there's one called the uh, the squeaking door, creaking door, or something. There's, there's an episode where the killer's name is Larry Gifford. Larry Gifford of Chicago, wanted for murder, is shot by police. No! Yeah. Are you serious? I swear to God. Larry, Larry <laughs> Gifford. Yep. Larry Gifford. How do you feel today, Gifford? Now remember, if you don't want your hair to stand on end, get someone to sit on your head. Okay? <laughs> Uh, let's hear Larry Gifford tell you his story in his own words. I wish I never heard that scream. I wish I never saw a body lying there. Blood all over the room. A knife on the floor near her throat. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget how I picked up the knife. I'll never forget the sweat that came creeping out all over me when I heard the door slam. Stand where you are. You make a move, I'll blow your head off. Don't shoot, copper. Cut that knife. Okay. What's your name? Larry. Larry Gifford. Did you? No way did you Google. Don't Google yourself, because I'm like this B actress who's in a lot of, like, really bad horror movies. Oh, like nice. Like, horny horror movies, apparently. Okay. But if I Google Larry Gifford, I guarantee I'm not going to come up with... <laughs> No, no. You know what I was doing? I was doing another podcast about radio, and I was uh, one of the guys that was the writer behind that show. uh, His estate was being sued for a million dollars, so I was just trying to get some context and stuff. And so I was, I was searching him, and I came up on this webpage, and there was a sample of the show, and I just played it. Good evening, Larry. I was wondering when you'd get here. You know him? Yes. 
Mr. Gifford and I are old friends. And I, all of a sudden I hear, Larry Gifford was a murderer. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, it was called The Creaking Door. I remember this now, The Creaking Door. Yeah, and the old time radio show was called. Yeah, it, well, it's because they found oh the door in the prop room, and they're like, "That's such a good door. Let's make a show around it." <laughs> it did sound scary at the time. Remember the things used to scare us. Now I'm reading Stephen King's It, and I can't sleep at night. I wonder why. Heather's podcast, Misdiagnosis, is not quite ready for release. After our chat, she battled pneumonia, and then because she's in San Francisco, she's been ordered to shelter in place for COVID-19, and hasn't quite figured out all the technical side of things yet, but she promises me the podcast is something that's still on the burner. Now, if I know Heather, her stove has about 28 big boiling pots at any given time, so I do look forward to hearing her podcast whenever the timing is right. Heather, uh, what what are these non-motor symptoms bugging you the most these days? Wow. So where do I begin? <laughs> Besides the insomnia and the anxiety, the cripple, almost crippling anxiety sometimes, um, for real. Like, you know, you can't depend upon your body. You're not sure. If I take a step, will I freeze in the middle of the parking lot? Will I be safe enough to drive? Will I be able to do the things that I said that I would do? Will I fulfill my responsibilities? So it's causal and chemical. You see, it is actually very real anxiety from very real sources, as well as the chemical imbalances we suffer, which cause my biggest challenge, which is depression. I'm well acquainted. I can see it coming from a mile away now and go, oh, there you come again. Here come the horsemen. Yep, they're coming to get me again. And they come riding up and they try to drag me through it again. And You know, depression's such a liar. It just wants to get you alone and dismantle everything you've got and take your last bit, you know? It's such a liar. It's such a horrible thing to deal with in isolation. When you're yeah. feeling it come on, what do you do? It's funny. Sometimes I'll either put myself out more or go into the cave, I call it. The cave will be a creative cave while I will just start working in earnest. But if I put myself out there more, that includes trying to help other people. I will go to my local Y, which I'm a member of, and I will work in the stroke class with those people, you know, unofficially, by the way. I'm not trained to do so. I will go work and help out with the Parkinson's boot camp. Um, I used to work with my friend Carol Fisher, who's a wonderful yogi and, and, and Parkinson's expert, actually. And she's introduced me to a lot of techniques to help people move. And that feels really good, you know. Something, to, something small to give back. I'll do these little random acts of kindness. I'll leave little pieces of art around it all pay for the person behind me in line or, you know, just small little things. I don't talk about it, but it does. It makes me feel a little bit better and it reminds me that my suffering's not, uh, not special. Everyone's suffering, you know, it's just the human experience. It doesn't kill you. It's going to make you think it's going to kill you though. You know, it threatens to, but it won't, it can't, it's in, you know, that, that part's not real. You just have to keep pushing back. That, this is what I tell myself. So are you in battle with the depression more than the, the disease? I do battle with depression much more than the actual physical symptoms of this disease. I can count on the fact that I'll be shuffling if my medication's off, that my left hand will start shaking and, and work a lot less um, efficiently, and sometimes my right too, that my foot will curl into dystonic fits, that my neck will hurt, my back, my shoulders, everything will always hurt. I will ache tremendously from head to toe. I can count on the fact that I'm going to not be able to roll over in bed sometimes. I'll feel like I'm stuck in quicksand of my sheets. 
my bed becomes quicksand, which was incidentally my greatest fear as a child. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, all of those things I'm expecting, you know, I'm expecting some of this, you know, urgency or, you know, all the aches and pains, all the things, slurring the words, my voice getting softer. That's why I do karaoke. I want to keep the voice moving. All those things are expected. I work out like an animal to keep up just the baseline of what I think might be my best physical self. But the depression, it's tricky. It creeps up. Like I said, it lies to you, tells you that you're nothing, that you're useless, that there are millions of people and billions of people and that you don't matter. It tells you that, that your contribution doesn't matter. And yet, we've got to keep our eyes on this bigger picture. We've got to do that. You know, like you have a bigger picture of helping through the greater good of all. It's not just the Larry Gifford thing. It's Larry Gifford is helping by giving his specific skills to our community and to the larger world. That is what it's all about. So when depression tries to kick me, I think, hey, people might be depending upon me. I'm going to get up for them. If I can't get up for myself, maybe I can get up for them, you know? And every time there's this little voice that says, get up. Get up now. You have work to do. You're not done. Don't let this beat you, you know? Okay, let me ask you a question. So you, there's a voice for the for the depression that you hear. Yeah. Then there's this yeah, other telling voice. telling you that you suck, yeah. Yeah, and then there's this other voice. Where can you can you differentiate where those voices are coming from? <laughs> My doctor asked me this too. Are you hallucinating? <laughs> um, yeah, and it isn't as simple as or as binary as like angel and devil or anything like that. The pieces of us, for example, when you have a dream, the Jungian dream therapy always says everyone that dreams a part of you, even if you're dreaming about a friend, right? So you know we have these complex things, just like that. What was that? Um, animated series where there was different parts of you, like, oh, hello, anxiety. Oh, hello, you know, you know, happiness. Oh, hello, cheerfulness. There you are again. I'm joy. This is sadness. That's anger. This is disgust. And that's fear. We're Riley's emotions. So I, I've learned to study that my thoughts aren't real. So these thoughts, these fleeting thoughts of you're nothing versus you're, you can do this, you know, I know that they're all just thoughts. It's kind of like when someone tells you that you suck or that you're great. It doesn't matter. If you have the higher purpose or you have something else in mind, you're going to keep doing that. So whether I'm getting the, the thought that's coming out of one, one part of me, an un, unidentifiable, insecure, fearful part of me saying, you can't do this. Go back to bed. It doesn't matter. You don't matter. Nothing matters. In fact, you might as well just die. You know, like that part, I know that that's not true. And the part, the egoic part that'll say, oh, my God, you're doing really great. Look at you. Yay. That's not true either, because that's not, neither of those things is what it's about. But the part that says, hey, you made it, you made a vow. You are going to do this for the greater good. You have some work to do today. Just do it in smaller pieces. Be gentle with yourself and put one foot in front of the other, you know, so I can override that, that sort of inner feeling. So I didn't really answer your, your question about where they come from, but because they keep welling up, just like the clouds, they just pass. They're always going to be there, but they just pass. Like, have you ever tried to meditate and still your mind? You can't do it, right? right. Thoughts are going to keep coming. Yeah, it's the same thing. So it's like I expect them now. And I go, oh, there you are again, planning. There you are, depression, anxiety, upset, you know, anger, angst, resentment. Oh, hello again. <laughs> oh, hi, there you go. Oh, now you pass. Oh, look, hello, joy. Come on in, you know. Hello, freedom. Hello, celebration. Hello, kindness. So you can name yeah. you can name the emotions, but can, did, have you given depression its own particular name, like Pete? <laughs> hey, Pete. Ooh, no, but I'd probably call it like my father-in-law. I mean, no. Oh, I'm hey. Just, I'd probably. <laughs> I'm just teasing. 
I'd probably call it, um, oh, I can't say anything political, but I'd probably pick someone that has done some policy, has made some policy decisions that negatively impact our community and call it that. You know, like the picture on my dartboard, which you can't see. No, no, it's a great picture. What's it look like? (laughs) It doesn't look like you. Okay. It looks like someone in in one of our highest offices in one of the biggest countries in the world. Gotcha. Okay. I think I know who you're talking about. Um, (laughs) Hello, NSA. (laughs) No harm. It's just a dartboard. I I always think of uh, Harry Potter and the the ridiculous, uh, where they they make the... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they put the ridiculous clothes on people and stuff when they're trying to get rid of their, the things they fear. And uh, Yes. I, I think there, we can do more of that. That's an excellent idea. I, I often, I've used to do this as a child. My grandmother taught me this. She said, oh, oh, there's a demon in your room. There's a monster. Turn around and growl at it. Mm-hmm. Growl bigger. You know, make yourself snarling. Look at how scary you are now, you know. And it works as an adult. You can, you can psych yourself out in all kinds of ways. You know, we can storyline all day long. Oh, they probably think this, or they probably did that, or they probably said this. You know, we can get really paranoid in our community, too, sometimes because of the drugs, if you don't mind me saying. Oh, yeah? yeah so. Are you on a lot of drugs? You know, I think I'm on, let's see, how many medications? There's, shall I name them? If you'd like. It doesn't bother me at all to do so because I don't identify with which medications are coming and going that the doctor has prescribed, but Cinemet and the content to strengthen or stretch the Cinemet, yep. Azelect, which is the, the drug that blocks the enzyme that breaks down dopamine, and this is why I don't do any recreational drugs whatsoever because you could actually die. Don't do that, people. Just heads up. And then um, I would say that I also take, what do I take regularly besides that? Oh, yeah, the new Pro Patch. Oh. That's the patch that delivers my dopamine agonist that I accidentally put three of on one time. Don't ever do that, folks. Word to the wise. Does the agonist does the agonist give you any <laughs> uh, you know um, uh, impulsive behaviors? Have you seen my Amazon bill? <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> Have you looked at my closet? Everything's color coded and kind of weird, or it's completely a disaster. There's either one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, when I when I do something, I really go in all the way, and I can get lost in it. People were like, "Why didn't you call me back?" And I'm like, "Oh, well, I got lost in organizing my belt collection, or I <laughs> I started researching the secret life of spiders with dewdrop hats, you know, and I get really into something." Wow. So, heck yeah, the compulsive impulsive behavior is bad too when you're out and you don't want to pull the ripcord. So I have to bring a friend with me who's more reasonable. Usually, if I go out during a night when my medication is on. Yeah. Yeah. That has been, you know, Uno Mas, you know, one more hour, one more dance, one more drink. Yeah. No, it doesn't work out too well the next day. Hey, listen, our time is up this time, but uh, there'll be another, I'm sure. Oh. Um, oh, I love talking to you. Do you have to go, friend? Okay. I do. I do. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. I appreciate you. All right. I appreciate you too. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. Heather Kennedy, a keeper of hope, a difference maker, believer, be inspired. Check out her writing, her videos, and more at KathleenKiddo.com. 
Heather Kennedy and I are both ambassadors for the 6th World Parkinson Congress, known as the WPC 2022. It'll be held June 7th to 10th in Barcelona, Spain, 2022. It is the only totally inclusive scientific conference that opens its doors to people with Parkinson's and their families. We'll be there. You should come join us. Learn more at WPC2022.org. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a Curious Cast podcast, written and produced by me, Larry Gifford. Our story editor is Dila Velazquez, and our sound design by Rob Johnson. We also want to hear from you. You can record a voice message for us at speakpipe.com slash when life gives you Parkinson's. Our presenting partner is Parkinson Canada, parkinson.ca. One of the programs Parkinson Canada offers is a confidential information and referral line. So if you have any questions at all, don't hesitate to reach out to info at parkinson.ca or call toll-free 1-800-565-3000. Parkinson Canada colleagues are there for you. They're great listeners and can answer questions on a huge range of topics. Thank you also to Heather Kennedy and to Disney Pixar's Inside Out, CBS Mystery Theater, The Creaking Door, Inner Sanctum Radio, The Estate of Hyman Brown, and speakingofradio.com. The Inner Sanctum episode featuring Larry Gifford as the murderer is from May 15th, 1945, long before I was born. It's called The Black Art. There's a link on the notes page. If you're interested in hearing more about the differences of how Parkinson's impacts men and women, listen to WPC 2019 Day 3, the episode from June 6th, 2019 in Kyoto, Japan. It's called Shaking Stereotypes of Parkinson's, featuring Amatola Thomas. And in honor of World Parkinson's Awareness Month, go back and listen to our April 11th, 2019 World Parkinson's Awareness Day special. It's worth your time to hear from some great advocates, including Matt Eagles, who was diagnosed more than 40 years ago at the age of seven. Special thanks to our promotional partner, Spotlight YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young-onset Parkinson's disease. You can find them at spotlightyopd.org. And in the U.S., Parkinson's IQ Plus U. This is a free series of Parkinson's events from the Michael J. Fox Foundation to educate and empower people with Parkinson's and their partners. While some of these events have been postponed due to COVID-19, you can go to michaeljfox.org slash pdiq and watch for rescheduled dates. And thank you for listening. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I really appreciate it that you're sharing this with your friends and your community. Some people are using this at their support groups to launch conversations. Please give us a five-star rating and share in the comments how you use the podcast and why you like it. You can also engage with us on social media. It's at Parkinson's Pod at Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can email us at parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. Keep positive, keep exercising, keep listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.